The comments, conclusions, findings, and opinions expressed by contributors of this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the Department of Defense or the United States government. The use of trade names or commercial entities is for identification only and does not imply endorsement by the Department of Defense or the United States government. Welcome back to the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Podcast. This is Monty from the Joint Trauma System and the Committee on TC3. On this edition, we will talk about the history of TC3, how it started, and how it came to be what we know today. There's absolutely nobody better qualified to tell that story than Captain Retired Dr. Frank Butler, who is with us today. Welcome, Dr. Butler. Thank you, Monty. So most of your military career was tied to tactical operations or tactical casualty care in some way, from your career as a SEAL platoon commander to research projects focused on combat casualty care to the TC3 phenomenon itself. Although 20 plus years ago, it was not exactly a phenomenon, and that's where we want to start today. So to kick it off, Doc, where where were we with tactical and pre-hospital trauma care prior to TC3? So in 1970, Navy Captain J.S. Mon wrote a paper near the end of the Vietnam conflict that said little, if any, improvement has been made in the pre-hospital phase of treating combat wounds in the past 100 years. With even an introductory reading of the pre-hospital trauma literature, one point stands out as critically important. Most combat fatalities die before they ever reach the care of a surgeon. And that underscores the importance of the care rendered by corpsmen, Army medics, and Air Force PJs. The number one cause of preventable death in Vietnam was extremity hemorrhage, and the magnitude of that issue was highlighted in Captain Mon's paper when he noted that the striking feature of his experience there was to see healthy young Americans with a single injury of the distal arm or leg arrive at a magnificently equipped field hospital, usually within hours, but dead on arrival. In fact, there were 193 deaths due to wounds of the arm or leg out of the 2,600 patients that he reported. That's a percentage of 7.4% of our casualties that died from extremity hemorrhage. If you take that percentage and extrapolate it to all of the 46,233 U.S. combat fatalities in Vietnam, The estimated number of preventable U.S. deaths from extremity hemorrhage in that conflict is 3,421. That's a staggering number. And beyond the tourniquet issue, the principles of battlefield trauma care in 1992 uh, were based on civilian trauma courses, not specifically designed to be used by the military. Medics, corpsmen, and PJs were taught not to use tourniquets because of the widespread belief that even short-duration tourniquet applications would cause ischemic damage to the arm or leg. There were no hemostatic dressings. Large-volume crystalloid fluid resuscitation was used to treat hemorrhagic shock. Two large-bore IV lines were recommended for all casualties with significant trauma, whether they needed fluid resuscitation or not. A Civil War vintage technique, IM morphine, was used for battlefield analgesia. There was no focus on the prevention of trauma-related coagulopathy. There was no consideration of the tactical context in crafting battlefield trauma care recommendations. 
there were some strange things being taught, such as special operations medics being taught to perform venous cutdowns if IV access could not be easily obtained in a peripheral vein. And there was a heavy emphasis on endotracheal intubation for pre-hospital airway management, despite a complete lack of literature that showed that that was beneficial to the casualties uh, when they were suffering from facial wounds that caused airway obstruction. So overall, it seemed like there were some definite opportunities to improve and that pre-hospital trauma care was a good project for the Naval Special Warfare Biomedical Research Program to take on. So these were the conditions and setting which TC3 initiative uh, was spawned. How, how did it all begin? The Naval Special Warfare Biomedical Research Program was started in 1989. The commander of the Naval Special Warfare Command at the time established an R&D program to conduct studies on medical and physiologic issues of particular interest to the SEAL community. The charter for the program was broad, and the Admiral's primary guidance was to focus on research projects that could be transitioned into use by Navy SEALs in the near term. So anything that could help take care of Naval Special Warfare personnel or to help them to perform their mission was fair game for this research program. And accordingly, uh, we undertook a wide variety of knowledge and technology programs to include the Navy SEAL Nutrition Guide, the Navy SEAL Physical Fitness Guide, a prototype tactical athlete program, laser refractive surgery for special operations personnel, a laptop-based medical translator program, expanded closed-circuit oxygen diving limits for SEAL delivery vehicle operations, as well as the Navy SEAL decompression computer. Also included in this research portfolio was battlefield trauma care. So what were some of the first evidence or considerations looked at as the project moved forward? The observation that tourniquets were widely discouraged by pre-hospital trauma care courses in 1992 was striking in light of the reports by Mon and Colonel Ron Bellamy that many preventable deaths in Vietnam resulted from extremity hemorrhage. Couple that with the fact that tourniquets are routinely used during orthopedic surgical procedures and don't cause loss of limbs, why then could tourniquets not also be used to save lives on the battlefield? There were no randomized controlled trials or modern case series that found that pre-hospital tourniquet use caused preventable loss of extremities. So the potential to effectively address a leading cause of preventable death on the battlefield with tourniquets compelled a relook at this aspect of battlefield trauma care. Interesting. What were the evidence gaps or even myths related to how medics were trained at that time? Well, after the realization that existing pre-hospital trauma care doctrine might be an error, regarding how to effectively address the number one cause of preventable death in combat, the potential for developing new insights into other aspects of pre-hospital trauma care also became obvious. Is spinal immobilization really required for victims of penetrating trauma? Is there good evidence that combat medical providers can effectively intubate casualties with traumatized airways? Is two liters of IV crystalloid solution the best way to treat hemorrhagic shock in the pre-hospital environment? Was intramuscular morphine really the best technique for battlefield analgesia in 1992? Now, the answer to all of these questions was no. 
And so a comprehensive relook at battlefield trauma care was needed and was undertaken. So how did the TC3 project itself get initiated? Naval Special Warfare Biomedical Research Task Statement 393 established a flag officer level requirement for a comprehensive review of battlefield trauma care. And this project was undertaken as a combined effort of Navy SEAL personnel and other special operations medical providers in conjunction with the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, or USIS. The project was four years in duration, spanning the years 1993 to 1996. The lethal chaos of the battlefield environment was considered in this project, as were combat medic training, equipment, and experience. Extensive input was obtained from combat medics, corpsmen, and PJs, and the recommendations developed were both evidence-based and reflected the wisdom of our combat medical providers. Notably, this project included reviewing the evidence for the prevailing concepts in pre-hospital trauma care at the time, as well as the evidence for proposed changes to these concepts. Too often, people demand evidence to change what they're doing without any good evidence at all for what they are doing at present. Additionally, there was a strong focus in this project on successfully addressing the leading causes of preventable death on the battlefield. So good medicine combined with good tactics has long been a mantra of TC3. How did that concept fit into the early development? As the project proceeded, it became increasingly obvious that battlefield trauma care had to be combined with an awareness of the tactical environment in which it's delivered. And this was brought to light by an E-7 SEAL corpsman, a Navy chief who was involved with the project, describing to me a testing scenario that he encountered at a special operations medical training course. The casualty scenario was on a hypothetical mountainous terrain battlefield. And as the training scenario was presented, he was performing the secondary survey as recommended by the Advanced Trauma Life Support Course on his casualty when enemy mortar fire began to get progressively closer to him and his casualty. The question presented to him by the course instructor was whether or not to finish the secondary survey or to immediately move himself and his casualty to a safer location. The correct answer according to the instructor was for him to finish the secondary survey. This answer was dramatically wrong as the SEAL chief knew and informed the instructor. The SEAL chief intuitively knew that good medicine can sometimes be bad tactics, and bad tactics can get everyone killed or cause the mission to fail. So the emerging TC3 guidelines, in order to ensure the best outcome for casualties and providers, needed to combine good medicine with good small unit tactics. So what were the initial conclusions, and how did you get the word out? Upon completion of the Naval Special Warfare Command research effort described earlier, the first set of TC3 guidelines was published in a 1996 special supplement to the journal Military Medicine. What this paper presented was a set of evidence-based, best-practice trauma care guidelines that were customized for use on the battlefield. And these guidelines were different in many respects from the prevailing pre-hospital trauma care doctrine at the time. The original TC3 guidelines included the following recommendations. Battlefield trauma care was divided into three phases, care under fire, 
tactical field care and casualty evacuation care. Doing the right thing medically at the wrong time tactically can produce catastrophic results. So identifying these phases of TC3 help to conceptualize the optimal care of the casualty with consideration being given to the ongoing tactical events. Next, tourniquets were strongly recommended for the initial control of life-threatening extremity hemorrhage. Fluid resuscitation was recommended only if the casualty was in shock and only if the hemorrhage that caused the shock had been controlled. The recommended resuscitation fluid was the starch solution Hespan instead of crystalloid solution. Spinal cautions were recommended only if the casualty's mechanism of injury was blunt trauma. Morphine was recommended to be given IV rather than IM, both to provide faster relief of pain and to reduce the likelihood of an opioid overdose that can result from the delayed onset of analgesia associated with IM morphine, followed by subsequent redosing. Uh, medications that cause impairment of platelet function, such as aspirin and ibuprofen, increase the chance of death from hemorrhage and need to be avoided in combat troops. Broad-spectrum uh, pre-hospital antibiotics were recommended for infection-prone wounds, such as open fractures or penetrating abdominal injuries or when evacuation to definitive care is delayed. The likelihood of survival in casualties with traumatic cardiopulmonary arrest on the battlefield is minimal, so CPR was not recommended in the pre-hospital combat environment. And finally, every casualty on the battlefield may present unique challenges based on the terrain and the specifics of the tactical situation. So scenario-based training was recommended to help to develop optimized care plan for different types of casualty situations. So what were the continuing efforts after the 1996 publication? The five-year period between the publication of the 1996 paper and the onset of hostilities in Afghanistan really saw four parallel efforts undertaken in the new TC3 program. First was presenting TC3 concepts to senior DOD line and medical leaders and advocating that they be used. Second was identifying representative types of TC3 casualty scenarios that might be encountered in special operations and developing responses to those specific types of casualty scenarios. The third effort was initiating TC3's first crucial partnership with civilian trauma organizations. In particular, the Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support Group, the National Association of EMTs, and the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. Lastly, TC3 training had to be expanded beyond just medical personnel and taught to SEAL and subsequently 75th Ranger Regiment combat leaders, as well as non-medical unit members. So you mentioned presenting the TC3 concept to several DOD leaders. How did that go initially? With any new best practice medical care recommendations, acceptance is not assured, and decision makers must be informed of the new concepts. They must become familiar with the evidence that supports them, and they have to be inspired to act on those recommendations. 
the new TC3 concepts were presented to senior DOD leaders in a series of briefings. Uh, in 1996, a high-level review of military R&D projects included a TC3 briefing to the group. Major General Les Berger was the Joint Staff Surgeon at the time, and he attended this briefing and became an early advocate for TC3. After the research review, he arranged for TC3 to be briefed to the Senior Military Medical Advisory Committee, consisting of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs and the Service Surgeons General, as well as himself. Major General Berger further directed that TC3 take the pre-hospital lead in the series of conferences that comprised the Joint Staff 2010 Futures Working Group. He also arranged for TC3 to be briefed to the Defense Medical Oversight Committee. This is a group comprised of the four-star Deputy Chiefs of Staff of the four armed services. TC3 was also briefed to the commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command. And the reception to all of these briefings was generally favorable, but TC3 was so different from previous battlefield trauma care practice that the recommendations were received with a measure of caution and no plan of action to implement these recommendations emerged from any of the briefings. TC3 was also presented at a series of medical conferences in the years 1996 and the annual Military Health System Conference, the Special Ops Medical Association Conference, and the U.S. Armed Forces Academy of Family Medicine and the Wilderness Medical Society annual scientific meeting. Presentation at these conferences was essential in the transition process in that they afforded the opportunity for a series of medical audiences to hear about TC3 and to identify any potential flaws in the TC3 concepts. The most significant pushback received about TC3 from these conferences was on tourniquets, since the no tourniquet rule was a venerated principle of pre-hospital trauma care at the time. Nobody at the conferences, however, was able to present evidence that the short duration application of a tourniquet would cause ischemic damage to an arm or a leg. But as with the senior leader briefings, these medical conference presentations produced no plan of action to incorporate TC3 into medical practice in the military. So despite the large investment in time and resources at the start of 1997, with respect to saving lives on the battlefield in the US military, TC3 was exactly nowhere. The first success in operationalizing concepts of TC3 came from briefing the leaders of specific combat units, notably the commander of the Naval Special Warfare Command, the leadership of the 75th Ranger Regiment, and the command element of the Army Special Missions Unit. By working in conjunction with unit surgeons and with unit senior enlisted medical advisors at these commands, Line commanders became convinced that TC3 offered an opportunity to improve survival in their unit's combat casualties. And it was these line commanders who subsequently directed that TC3 be implemented within their commands. The PJ Medical 
Oversight Advisory Board also responded to the recommendations and TC3 concepts were incorporated into use in the PJ community in the 1997-1998 timeframe as well. So how did the project continue to relook at its re recommendations? The success of the Naval Special Warfare Biomedical Research and Development Program drew the attention of the leadership at the U.S. Special Operations Command. And in the late 1990s, uh, Rear Admiral Chuck Lemoyne, the deputy commander there, directed that this research effort be expanded to address the research needs of all of the components of U.S. SOCOM. So the U.S. SOCOM Biomedical Initiative Steering Committee was established to help oversee the research program, and that included continuing the TC3 effort. The next step in developing TC3 concepts was to evaluate how specific casualty scenarios would impact the optimal actions taken to care for casualties. As mentioned before, special operations missions take place in a number of challenging environments, and there are only two times that you can plan for what to do in a casualty scenario, before the scenario occurs or in the real world after it occurs. A series of workshops was therefore held to look at TC3 as it would apply in sealed diving operations, in the wilderness environment, in urban warfare environments such as Mogadishu, and in chemical, biological, and radiological casualty scenarios. The recommendations for these various casualty scenarios that came out of these workshops were in no way intended to be directive in nature, but to provide operational commanders and combat medical personnel with some considerations on how to approach the casualty response for each different type of scenario. So TC3 started having connections to civilian trauma organizations long before being integrated across DOD. How did that happen? The TC3 program was fortunate to make a great friend early in its evolution. Uh, that connection uh, between TC3 and the civilian pre-hospital trauma care community came as a result of one of the leaders of that community, the late Dr. Norman McSwain, suggesting to then Rear Admiral Mike Cowan, later Surgeon General of the Navy, that med military medicine contribute material to the 1998 fourth edition of the Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, or PHTLS, manual. This initial interaction led to a robust and ongoing dialogue between the military and civilian pre-hospital trauma care providers. TC3 material was included in the PHTLS manual for the fourth edition, just as Dr. McSwain had suggested, and has been part of every PHTLS textbook since then. This inclusion represented an important measure of acceptance for TC3. Dr. McSwain was one of the nation's leaders in pre-hospital trauma care, and the recommendations in the PHTLS manual are endorsed by the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, as well as the NAEMT. The strong partnership between PHTLS and TC3 has endured over the years and been of great benefit to TC3 and, we hope, to the civilian sector as well. So tactical unit leaders play a huge role in TC3 and casualty management during the mission. What were some of the initial moves to inform and educate commanders about TC3? 
Right. The fourth parallel line of effort in TC3 involved combat commanders. Soon after its inception, it became obvious that it was not just the medics who needed to understand TC3. Line commanders need to know these concepts as well because in combat, casualties occur in the context of an ongoing mission. In determining the unit response to the casualty situation, one re must recognize that prosecuting the mission and providing optimal care for the casualty may be in direct conflict. What is best for the casualty may not be what's best for the mission. And when there's this sort of conflict, which consideration takes precedence? Both the SEAL community and the Ranger Regiment understood this fact early on and began to incorporate this expanded TC3 training into their respective unit programs. And then in 1999, a book was published which eloquently illustrated this inherent conflict. The book was entitled Special Operations, and it was authored by then Commander William McRaven. The book contained a number of notable special operations missions with commentaries on the relevant tactical considerations. One of the missions in the book was the Israeli Defense Force raid on the Entebbe Airport in 1976, a dramatic rescue of 106 hostages from the airport terminal in Uganda. As the assault phase of that operation commenced, the ground commander, Lieutenant Colonel Yanni Netanyahu, brother of the current Israeli prime minister, was shot in the chest. In a non-tactical setting, attention would immediately be directed to the injured person. In a hostage rescue mission, however, rescuing the hostages before the terrorists have a chance to execute them is the mission's overriding priority. That is precisely what Lieutenant Colonel Netanyahu had briefed to his rescue force before the mission, and that was exactly what his team did when confronted with his injury at the start of the assault phase of the rescue. Netanyahu unfortunately died of his wounds, but the mission was a dramatic success. There's no question that this was the correct course of action, and it is critical that mission commanders consider casualty scenarios such as this one as part of their mission preparation. Occasionally, we have TC3 students ask, what's the relevance of this older tactical scenario to the force today? Well, a very similar scenario occurred in 2012 when a SEAL team on another hostage rescue mission in Afghanistan had their point man sustain a gunshot wound to the head as he went through the door of the building where the hostage was being held. The second assaulter, rather than stop and render care, proceeded with the mission, removed the threat in the room, and successfully rescued the American hostage. Once the room was secured and the hostage safe, the second assaulter, Senior Chief Ed Byers, who was a corpsman, then helped to provide care for his wounded teammate. Senior Chief Byers subsequently received the Medal of Honor for his actions. Both the raid on Entebbe and Senior Chief Byers' hostage rescue mission are dramatic examples of why the tactical aspects of TC3 are just as important as the medical aspects. TC3 is designed to secure mission success as well as to save lives by doing the right thing at the right time in response to a casualty situation. So in 2000, we were poised for entering a new century and unknowingly right then poised for a long war. 
Where did TC3 stand at that point? In 2001, two things happened that would permanently change the face of TC3. The first was the founding of the committee on TC3 at the Navy Operational Medicine Institute, thanks to the leadership of Captain Doug Freer, the commanding officer there, and Captain Steve Gibner at that command, who became the first chairman of the committee on TC3. The second event was that our nation went to war in Afghanistan as a result of the vicious Al-Qaeda attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, as well as the Pentagon. The committee on TC3 and the TC3 working group continue to do superb work in providing our combat medical personnel with updated and evidence-based best practice guidelines for battlefield trauma care. The importance of the work that our combat medical personnel do cannot be overstated because if a combat casualty lives long enough to reach the care of a surgeon, the odds are overwhelming that he or she will survive their injuries. Our country's men and women in uniform count on military medicine to provide them with the best care possible if they're wounded in combat, and we must all live up to that trust every day. Well, you certainly have, Doc. Thank you very much. Not just for talking with us today, but thank you for the effect you've had on a generation of medics and docs out there. Uh, many probably do not know the long history and work it took for what they have today is as training and equipping programs, and you had an immeasurable role in saving hundreds and likely thousands of lives over the last two decades. So truly, thank you. Thank you, Monty. I appreciate the chance to be here. And as everybody um, involved with TC3 knows, all we do is try to best support uh, our combat medical personnel because they are the ones using TC3 to save lives on the battlefield. That they are. This concludes this edition of the TC3 Podcast. Please return next time by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. Make sure you set up your notifications to alert you of new episodes. Remember that you can always find the latest TC3 information, knowledge tools, and the current guidelines at www.cotccc.com. Feel free to provide feedback, ask questions, prompt discussions, or make a TC3 suggestion on the feedback form of the, of the website. Keep in mind that changes to the TC3 guidelines are published in detail in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Our target is eliminating preventable combat death, which can be achieved with the right training and the right tools applied by the right people at the right time. As always, stay safe out there and continue saving lives on the battlefield, wherever that battlefield or deployed setting or street is in the world. <laughs>